Hello and welcome. My name is Brian and you're listening to Friends in Music with Brian Doherty, a podcast about all things music with those who are obsessed by it. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please feel free to get in touch. I encourage you to subscribe to my podcast on your chosen platform and thank you for listening. My guest today is John Sickett. John is a music producer, recording engineer, and mixer. He's best known for his work with Sonic Youth, Fish, Yolo Tango, Dave Matthews Band, Blonde Redhead, Fountains of Wayne, Moe, Peter Murphy, Freedy Johnson, The Bottom Dollars, and X-Cops. Did you know there's even a Fish recording named after John entitled The Sicket Disc? John and I had a flowing and wide-ranging discussion, and about 90 minutes in, we realized that we needed even more time. So we agreed that what you'll hear today will be part one of a two-part interview. On a more personal note, as I learn how to record these podcasts, I now realize that my, my, that my microphone tends to be too loud in the mix as I get too close. I realize that, and I'll do my best to improve the audio as I produce these episodes. Otherwise, sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right, so welcome, John. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here. And uh, Hi, just, to, just to get started, just for anybody, I know a lot about you, but for anybody who is not yet familiar with you or your work or what you do, uh, can, you, can you sum up what you do? Can you give us a brief introduction about who you are sure. and what you do? Sure. Uh, I am a professional audio engineer. And uh, also do some producing on the side, so I'm a music producer as well. Um, I've been in the audio industry since 1986, and I have several gold and platinum record awards, and um, songs that I've worked on have been nominated for Grammys. We haven't won a Grammy yet, but that's a yet. Very, very nice. Um, why don't we start from the beginning? I mean, I, I, I'm thinking right now that I'm, I was just thinking about when the first time I met you, and I think it was at Water Music in Hoboken, New Jersey. Would, it certainly would, was. Um, and um, do you want to start there? Like, where, where in your career were you at that, at that point? And maybe if you feel like explaining how you got there and, and, and so on, you, you can sure. go ahead. Um, I grew up in a military family. My father was in the army and, and um, he bought back a big stereo uh, when he came back from Vietnam. And for whatever reason, the uh, receiver always lived in my room and the speakers were out in the living room. And I used to resent the fact that I had this big receiver and a turntable in my room. You know, it just kind of took up the room. And you I also could see these, you also couldn't hear it in your room either. <laughs> no, I couldn't. Um, I really wasn't into music so much at that time. My parents, um, you know, my mother bought all the popular stuff, you know, when she was growing up. Um, and my father, you know, he liked he liked music. Um, uh, my mother, you know, there were a lot of um, my mother. There were more of my mother's LPs lying around and you know the great thing about for me 
the best thing about vinyl was the was the package that it came in because there was a lot of writing on it and you know more besides you saw the artists but besides that there was like terms like engineer and producer and that's really where my interest you know started there i was like wow so there's people that work alongside these artists it seems like you know and i that's really all i kind of knew at that point and then um one day uh we were living in germany and um uh my father um we were there but my, my parents i don't know who put it on we were listening to a beach boys record basically i think we were listening to endless summer and um I asked my father, I said, well, how come the drums come out of one speaker? And, you know, how come the, basically it was a really simple, basic question. I said, mm -hmm. you know, I was, I was inquiring about panning, you know, and, and he said, well, that's to give the, that's stereo and that's to give the sense of space, you know, and that's all he said. Uh, my father, my father was, uh, he was in the field artillery, but he had a, he had a good technical mind. He has a good technical mind. He's still with us. He, he oh, has a good technical mind. Thank you. Well, and, that, I, I, and, and I was going to ask you if he had an audio. Not at uh, all. Any sort of audio no. sense or, you know. No, but he could explain stuff very well. And, and that, you know, I thought was a good ex explanation. So I was like, okay, that's interesting. And then, you know, this didn't happen overnight. Um, the more, as I got older, I got more into music, you know, through the friends and the people that I hung out with. And then I really started to look harder at, you know, the, the writing on, that was on the, the LP sleeves. And then occasionally you'd see a picture of people in the recording studio. Yes. And that was completely mysterious, you know. And you got to realize at this time, there wasn't a lot of information. You know, we, we didn't have access to information back then that, that we do now. So, you know, it really was kind of a mystery to me. And um, um, in, in high school, um, I, I wanted to play, a lot of my bands played, uh, my friends played instruments. And, um, you know, I, was thought, I thought, wow, how can I, what can I, what kind of instrument can I play? And, you know, to, to be included in that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was always interested in sort of gadgetry and the way things worked. And I remember Radio Shack sold a, a real Moog synthesizer and it was $500. And that was just, oh boy, it might have been, it might as well have been thousands of dollars, yes. but it was an honest to goodness Moog synthesizer. And so one time it was half off. So all of a sudden, you know, months later it was half off. So $250. Somehow I got the money together and I bought this and I brought it back home and I loved, you know, there, there was no way to store patches. There were no presets. You know, there was just an oscillator or two, a white noise generator, a filter and so on. Did, did you have to patch in, did you have to use patch cords in that one? Only to get the, uh, only to hear the output, but no, there was no patching okay. like you see on, on modular sense today. Like the, no, ARP, no. the ARP 2500. No, no, God, it was way simpler than that. We're talking, I think it had a two and a half octave keyboard and 
you know, I could put it under my arm and walk away with it. It wasn't, it wasn't that it was really, really similar to the Moog Rogue. Okay. Um, but this was just Radio Shack's version of it. And, um, you know, I think it had RCA unbalanced outs on it as well. So you could plug it into a stereo and and that's exactly what I did. And I would spend hours down in the basement making sounds and stuff. And then I eventually got a compact organ and I used to kind of jam and I used that with air quotes because all my friends were, they had a, they just seemed to have a more of an ear for music. And, um, you know, I played along as best I could. And then, um, some years later, um, a friend of mine, I was living in Colorado at this time. My father was stationed in Colorado. And some years later, uh, um, a friend of mine who was from Colorado but lived in New York City said, hey, I'm doing an off-Broadway play and I need uh-huh. some background music. And I was like, really? And I thought, like, I think I can do that, you know? And so he gave me a couple hundred dollars and uh, a guitar player friend and I booked out some studio time in, in downtown Colorado Springs. And one of the reasons we chose, the, I chose the studios because they had an, an early drum machine. And so, you know, I basically went in with some rough ideas and, um, and, and, and recorded for about, I think we, we only had one day there. So we recorded about 40 minutes of incidental music no vocals. Oh wow! The engineer programmed the drum machine, and at the end of the day, he uh, started mixing everything down. And I and I sat behind him and watched him work. And I didn't have any kind of vocabulary for of musical terms or or you know studio terms. And I would say stuff like I can't even remember what I would say, but he would go, "I think I know what you mean." Let me try this. And, you know, I was really impressed with the way he just tied it all together. And he took these ideas that were, you know, in my head and made them sound really good, you know. And uh, we're talking eight-track reel-to-reel recording here, by the way. Yeah. Not No DAWs yet. And um, uh, and, and, and at, at some point during the, towards the end of that session, I said, this is really what I want to do. I want to do what this guy's doing. You know, I, I didn't really feel like I had an aptitude to, to keep on practicing and learning the keyboards, but this reminded me so much of me creating sounds on my synthesizer. I just felt like a connection on that level. Mm-hmm. And so I started to look into this and there were these, you know, in the back of Rolling Stone magazine, there were a couple of recording schools, maybe only even one, that that um, uh, advertised. And so when I graduated from high school, I told my parents I want to go to recording school. And, you know, I was famous or infamous for not finishing things. <laughs> and my parents were like... You weren't alone. They thought, they thought it was a passing phase. <laughs> <laughs> And so they go, why don't you go to college and get a four-year degree? And then if you're still interested in this, we could talk about it. And, and so uh, 
I went to the University of Colorado in Colorado, the extension in Colorado Springs for a semester. I took music theory. I think I got a C in it. Um, it was really difficult for me. And then it came time for my, my parents were gonna go do another tour of Germany, you know, military tour. And they said, you have to make a decision, John, are you gonna stay here or are you gonna come to Germany with us? And I, I really liked Germany, but as a 19 year old, I felt that I should stay in America. And so I went to, I went, I moved to New York and I went to live with my grandparents and uh, I continued in school uh, there. And during my senior year, I got an internship. I was a communications major and uh, I read some books, you know, the books I could get my hands on. But for my junior intern, uh, my junior senior internship, uh, I got to work at an honest to goodness recording studio. Oh, wow. And, and this was Bearsville Studios, which is um, right outside of Woodstock, New York. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Bearsville at that time, 1986, was a really, it was a cutting edge studio. Um, they had an SSL console. And at that time, there were only two SSL consoles in all of New York. There was one in New York City and Bearsville had the other one. And so um, my first day was setting up microphones for till tuesday um oh wow voices carry no that was the record right after that okay. uh it was called coming home coming coming home i believe and um you know it was um that studio was was incredible they had two rooms well they actually had three the third room was a rehearsal room with a pa in a separate building and i actually lived upstairs in that room for this internship that was the barn, right? Yes, the barn, exactly. The barn, yes. And um, after the first day or so, um, I think they realized that I, you know, well, I asked way too many questions. And, you know, this was an actual session going on. And so while the assistants, assistant engineers wanted to, Ask, answer my question they couldn't they had to they had to focus on the job at hand which was recording you know so I was relegated to the studio shop for a long time and there I did a lot of soldering and um, I got really good at soldering and I, I asked as many questions as I could think of in that atmosphere which was educational still right. um, and then that lasted about three or four months. Um, and I, you know, I was bitten by the bug. I don't know if you've ever seen any pictures of Bearsville, but it's. Yeah, I've, 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 I've worked up there. Oh, you've worked up there. Yeah. Oh, okay. And in the barn. I've, well, we did pre-production in the barn for uh -huh. like three weeks and then we moved over to the main studio. The big room? The big room studio, for. Um, studio A? Yeah. Studio A, yeah. That's a great room. That, and that, that uh, every, every room there was, was great for sure. And, uh, and the atmosphere is unbelievable. I, I find it very, very pretty. Isn't it great? And, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, isn't it, isn't it great? And we, and I, I've been there in the middle of the winter with a severe snowstorm and everything, but it's, it's just the best place to be. It's still pretty. Yeah. And you know, I, I will, I will talk about Bearsville some more later. I, I'd love that. Sure. Uh, so, um, 
Anyway, I went back to the, the studio manager at Bearsville said, when you graduate college, come back here. You can start working here for us. And I was so, I was elated. And so I went back to finish my senior year and I told all my classmates, I've got a job already. I'm, you know, I've got it made, blah, blah, blah. I'm doing exactly what I want. You know, I was very, very happy and satisfied. And then April, before I was, the, the next year, April, when I, I just happened to call up there and said, hey, are you ready for me in June? Because I'm going to get an apartment and I'm going to move up there and all this. And they said, well, that guy doesn't work here anymore. Uh -oh. And we, we don't know the arrangement that you had with him. We don't know anything about it. And so, and there were very few interns uh, at Bearsville Studio. I think I, I was really the only one. And um, they, they weren't accustomed to taking interns, but I insisted that, they, that I'd be an intern there. And luckily I got that spot. Oh, wow. So for uh, the next few months, I was like, wow, what am I going to do? Because I hadn't made any plan Bs, you know. <laughs> I was going with plan A. And um, so I did a combination of, uh, I, I became a full-time substitute teacher where I, in a, in a school, in an entire district, and I would get a phone call at like 6 a.m. and they'd say, go here, go there. And so, and, and John, was, was that up in the Woodstock area or you No, it was a little or? bit south of that. It was like, let's say Woodstock's exactly two hours from New York City. This was about an hour north of New York. So it was okay. right, right, in, right in between. Okay. And, um, you know, I liked teaching kids. Like I found that I, there was an appeal to that. And I kind of, um, I would get the village voice and I would answer studio ads looking for help in the back of the voice. And at that time, rap was getting really big. And one of the questions was, do you have a sample library? And I would be like, no, I don't. <laughs> and so that really negated me from getting any jobs at that time, because that's what people wanted. They wanted people who understood sampling and had a sample library. And so I just could not compete on that level. So the following summer, let's fast forward another year, um, I was painting houses because as you know, teachers don't do anything during the summer. So I decided to take on odd jobs and, and painting jobs and stuff. And um, one day I was painting a house in uh, Glen Ridge, New Jersey. And it was a, it was a classmate of mine from, from college and, and I was painting his parents' house. And he managed a band when I was in college. And um, those guys showed up at the house and they said, hey man, are you still interested in working in the studio? And I was up on a ladder with a paintbrush in my hand. And I said, yeah, kind of, but I, you know, I had, gone through so many disappointments that it really wasn't in the forefront of my mind. And he said, we'll make you, a, we'll make a recommendation. I played keyboards briefly with these guys. Okay. So that's how they knew me. And um, so I said, you know, what have I got to lose? So I called up the place and I gave them the reference. And then one day after school, I hopped in my 1973 green super beetle and drove down to Hoboken, New Jersey to water music. And I talked to the manager and the owners 
And they said, you know what? I, one of the things I mentioned is like, I know how to solder. And that was what got me the job. They said, you can solder? We have a lot of soldering <laughs> projects for you. And so I started that day. And I was like, wow, is this really happening? And um, I started to do both. I started to teach in the daytime and then drive down and, and commute at night. And it was tough because, um, you know, it was about a 90 minute drive both ways. And so, you know, I'd leave school around three and I'd get there around five. And then I'd get back home at midnight. So I did that for a long time. And um, then finally, um, they started to pay me at Water Music. And then I said, you know what? This could be my chance. So I quit teaching school. I got a really cheap apartment in Hoboken and I started to work at Water Music. And I worked there for a couple of years and I, that's where I really started to learn how to record music. Um, at first, they let me bring in my own band and work from midnight to like 9 a.m., you know, for like 20 bucks an hour. And so if it took me a long time to figure something out, no one freaked out because, because right. the band understood what was happening. You know, like, you know, um, I'm not going to name any name. Let's keep it anonymous. It's always better. <laughs> but the, the, the studio owner said, look, this is a training session, a paid training session. And so they were totally cool with that, you know. And so I learned a lot about this, the, that particular studio and signal flow um, on those sessions. And then um, every now and then, you gotta remember this is before the internet and cellular phones. Every now and then uh, an engineer would come from, from over from New York City and do a session and just totally do something different and blow my mind. Would you, and, John, John, I'm sorry to interrupt, but at that no. time, in, in a situation like that, would you become the assistant was it understood that, you, yes, you know, somebody yes. else brings in their guy, you're the assistant? Yes, that's right. Okay. You know, and before, before I get that, to that, actually, I should talk about some of the, the artists that I work with at Water Music. So um, one of, you know, the, how I met you was on the Freedy Johnston sessions. You know, Freedy yes. was a bar none artist, which was located in Hoboken. And we, we worked with quite a few bar none artists there. Yes, you did. Um, I also met Chris Staney from the DBs. He had a, a tremendous effect on, on me. You know, I, you know, he was a very much a DIY guy. And uh, so I, you know, and I, and I worked with him quite a bit, him and he and Peter Hulsapple, yeah. um, both of the DBs and Gene Holder of the DBs and Will Rigby of the DBs. Yeah. Um, all those guys were uh, using water music quite a bit. And then um, I met an, a, a New York engineer named Hugo Dwyer, and he was recording a, knitting, a, a big knitting factory jazz ensemble called the Jazz Passengers. Oh, yeah. And um, that's actually, that was actually my, my first connection with any kind of studio in New York. Um, one of the people that he brought along with him was this guy named Peter Beckerman, who worked at a studio on 45th between 8th and 9th called Sound on Sound. Mm-hmm. And after a few sessions, he said, I might be able to get you a job where I work in Manhattan. Are, would you be interested in that? I was like, yes, I'm, in, I'm interested. So um, 
I also worked with, um, God, I want to name the bands. Um, there were a lot of, you know, big indie bands and, and a lot of smaller bands that probably will go unnoticed or have gone unnoticed. But uh, Yola Tango was one of the bigger bands that I worked with. Man, I should have looked, I should have done my homework. Sonic so. Youth? Sonic I didn't. I didn't start working with them at water. I'm trying to keep it okay. to water music. You know, so point. I can. So here, here you go for water music. I also worked with you and Helen Hook. Remember her? Sure. The the was she a, a violin player? Yes. Remember? Yes. That? Yes. We we did a record, at least one record, with you there. But uh, was that before Freedy or after? That, I think that may have been. I I honestly I don't I don't, I don't remember. Yeah. But, but, That's a while but, that, ago. but that was at the old water music as well. And when we say, do you want, do you want to explain for listeners what the old, when we, when, when we referred to the old water music, what, what are we talking about? That was their, their first location. It was on uh, 201 Grand Street. I still remember the address. Grand and Second, right across from Leo's Grandevue. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, here I'm getting on, I'm getting on all music here. So I'm going to, I can, now, now it'll be, um, a lot easier here. Um, the original sins I worked with, they were a bar none. Uh, ben Vaughn, he was from Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. Remember him? I, yeah, I liked him a lot. Uh, Stamey Hall's Apple, Chris Stamey by himself. How about any of the, a lot of, the, bands, a lot the of bands from the Bongos. Never, I worked with Jim Mastro. Jim was a producer. Mm -hmm. But I never worked with, and I worked with Richard Barone as a, he was producing, but okay. but never the bongos themselves. And I've recorded Frank Giannini on drums. He yeah. was with Helen Hook, I think. Okay. Um, maybe maybe when you weren't. Yeah, and um, who was the other? Um, he was in the bongos briefly. George, George Usher. Oh wow, he's a keyboard player, right? Uh, I think he plays keys and guitar. George yeah, Usher. I did a lot of recording with him, actually, yes, now that yes. you mention it. Yes. Um, I have a vivid memory of those albums. Remember those album jackets on the wall? Sure. And as you, as long, you enter, enter the studio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as you enter the studio. And I, and I remember seeing the Stamey Holes. I mean, Chris Stamey must have lived at Water Music. He did. He, he did quite a bit of work. He, he had this kind of annoying habit of, of wanting to start at 9 a.m., <laughs> which how dare it? he right <laughs> i think you told me if, if you can re re remember this story and maybe you can you can tell it but was, sure. was he was he the artist you work with that when they were done mixing they would they erase would they erase their masters somebody that was peter hall's apple okay so you were telling me about that do you want to yes just peter hall's apple peter hall's apple had done before stamey hall's apple the fireworks record he would come in every now and then with stuff that he'd done. And, you know, he had his own songs and then he would do these really clever covers. Um, do you know the Todd Rundgren song? Couldn't I just tell you the way that I feel? I can't keep it bottled up inside. Anyway, he did a one time version of that. <laughs> in, in seven, eight, I think. <laughs> oh my God. But it was great. It, yeah. was, it was great, you know? And yes, he would say, okay, erase the, you know, we got the mix, erase the master. And I'd be like, are you sure you want to do this? He said, I'm absolutely sure. You know, and this would be at four in the morning. And I'd right. go, are you, we may not be thinking very clearly Can't now. we just wait a day? <laughs> yeah. But he was insistent, you know. 
And we used to we used to have this other thing we would say, we mix at dawn, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Synchronize your watches. We mix at dawn. Um, so yeah, I met a lot of great personalities. A lot again, I worked with a lot of knitting factory bands at Water Music, mm -hmm. you know, when Knitting Factory was on Houston Street. And yes. man, was a lot of talent in that group. Yes. A lot of talent, you know. Um I almost don't know how you would classify that music, but it was just really talented. And I think serious people, you know. They even put together like tours. There was a tour that I I was asked to go on with Oren Blodow and Danny Bloom. Uh-huh. Uh it, but it was like a knitting factory package. There like I six, did one of those tours. I did sound on one of those tours. Okay. Do, do you remember there was a knitting factory band called Miracle Room? Yes, of course I do. But they, they were from they were on they, Bar None yes. too, weren't they? I think so. And I do remember them recording at Water Music. Right. Very cool band. Yes. They they did um what was I gonna say? They went to uh they went to Europe and yes. I was their sound person. And so we went to France, Spain, and Holland. And we were running in parallel to the Knitting Factory. Okay. We weren't officially part of that bill, but we would follow them around. Right. And, you know, that was my second time. I hadn't been in Europe since the mid-70s when I was a kid. And so going back in the early 90s with a, a rock band was, you know, a whole other take on it. So when you when you were at Water Music, were, I mean, to, to me, this all sounds exciting. Like you're learning... Oh, it's you're, you're meeting it's all these new exciting. people. Every every day is a new adventure. And when somebody offers you an opportunity to work at Sound on Sound, what do you do? Are are you are you hesitant? Do you have to think about it? I mean, or is it just like, nah, I just I would just rather work in Midtown Manhattan. Well that well that was that was basically it. I, I kind of felt like I'd taken water music as far as I could. And you know, I, I can't downplay the no cell phones and no internet thing enough because the only way you would meet people was by going to different places. And, you know, you couldn't meet anybody online, you know, that wasn't a thing back then. So for me, it was, it was mostly about seeing different engineers do things differently. My, it wasn't so much about meeting and new, knowing new people, although it did turn out that way. My, my impetus was to, learn different recording techniques by, by being in that atmosphere where I'd see New York City engineers on a regular basis. And so I basically, I, I, I gracefully bowed out of water music and I started as a low man on the totem pole at Sound on Sound, but I was still thrilled to be in a Manhattan studio in Midtown, like you said, and and with with modern equipment as well, more modern equipment. Right. And um, that studio was very well run. It's actually um, opened again in Montclair. The, oh, wow. They have they have moved and now they're in Montclair. Um, but the, that studio was extremely well run. And um, I also got exposed to a lot of jazz. I, I had done some jazz sessions when I was an engineer at Water Music, but. At Sound on Sound, jazz was sort of our, we did it all the time. And, and all that jazz, all that jazz <laughs> was, was, was recorded live to two track. Um, what are some, can, can you recall, 
yes. in, in any capacity, the artists that ro that strolled through there. Are you talking about jazz strictly, or, or, uh, or no? Any anybody, you know, I mean that you that you encountered at that. Scene. Sure, um, David S. Ware, Jeff Keezer. Um, I also got to work on a Deep Purple record. Okay, wow. Um, we also did a lot of jingles there too, and a lot of not a lot of rap, but some R and B, and. Um, are we, are we are we talking the late 80s early 90s here early 90s okay early 90s yes we're, we're we're firmly in the 90s now okay um and then uh you know one day uh on the calendar it said sonic youth to see the studio and i i turned to the studio manager i go who's gonna be here he's like oh i don't know and i was like and then it said butch vig as well and mm -hmm. at that time the Nirvana record was, you know, red hot. Never mind, was just red hot. It actually said Butch Vig and Andy Wallace to see the studio regarding Sonic Youth, and I, I said, gonna, "I'm going to make, I'm going to make sure I'm there." I said, "Yep," to hype the studio, you know. And so Jess Butch came, and I said, "We have a Neve console. You have to work here." Blah blah blah. We also have this, 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 and that. That's it. And so you know, they ended up working there, and. Um, Funnily enough, simultaneously, um, I was doing a record in New Jersey with some of Sonic Youth's uh, roadies, which was called Cell, C-E-L-L. -L. Mm -hmm. And unbeknownst to me, I, in regards to Sonic Youth, the, the record was called Dirty. And it was like, I was on for two weeks, off for two weeks, on for two weeks, off for two weeks. And so when I was off for two weeks, I was recording Sonic Youth's roadies, AKA Cell, over in New Jersey. <clears throat> And they were playing the rough mixes for uh, Thurston and Butch. And uh, Butch was like, hey, I really like that Cell record. And I was like, oh, cool, man. I had no idea you were listening to it. <laughs> and, um, and Thurston signed Cell. He had the, since he sort of discovered Nirvana, he had his own imprint. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I can't remember the name of it, but um, it was like a clever name. And, um, um, so I, you know, I learned a lot by watching uh, Andy Wallace work, uh, mixing the Sonic Youth record. And I, you know, I, I, I really got friendly with Lee Ronaldo from Sonic Youth. He was the most talkative, you know, to me anyway. And, um, at the end of it all, uh, Butch Vig was packing his stuff up and getting ready to leave. And he had a boom box and he was listening to some singer-songwriter stuff. And I thought to myself, wow, if he likes that, he really should check out Can You Fly. So I just happened to have a copy of Can You Fly on CD with me. And I said, hey, man. And, that, and that's a free, and that's a, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's a Freedy Johnston record for everybody. Correct, that yes. Does not know we that. both know that. Because yeah. <laughs> we play it on there. <laughs> yeah. So I, I said, I think you'd really like this. You know, based on, again, what he was listening to at that time when he was packing his stuff up. And he goes, oh, yeah, I've heard of this guy. I think, uh, thank you. And he dropped it into his shoulder bag. And then, you know, at that time, right around that, or a little before that, you know, Can You Fly was, was it record of the year by the Village Voice? It was yes. deemed a, a perfect record, right? Yes, it was. Yes. By yeah. Chris Cow. Yes. 
And so um, I would say about four or five months later, I got a phone call and it was, it was Butch Vig and he said, man, I really love that Can You Fly record and Freedy got signed to Elektra and, you know, would you like to engineer? And I was like, oh boy, would I, you know? <laughs> and then um, there was some kind of delay in the, um, you know, the, the, the start of that recording was pushed back a month or two. But Butch says, well, hey, I'm going to do, I'm going to do some recording with Helmet in uh, at Power Station. Could I get you to engineer that? And I was like, hell yeah. You know, nice. so that was the, that was this really the second time that Butch and I worked together. And uh, then we ended up doing the Freebie record together. And then we did a, a Sonic Youth record together. And then I did a Sonic Youth record, just the band and I, um, sometime after that, uh, down in Memphis. Um, but, but I, at that point, um, I was, um, I had uh, resigned gracefully from Sound on Sound, and I, I'd become independent. And, um, and some of the first independent records that I, you know, w w one of them was, was, um, was working with Sonic Youth, I, I'd say. Mm -hmm. um, Butch and I did Jet Experimental, Jet, Jet, Jet Set, Trash, and No Star together. And then uh, with just the band and I was Washing Machine. And, and we actually did that in Memphis. And let's see here. Um, John, I have, I, I, I don't want to disrupt the flow, but, but I have, no. I've made so many notes here that I would like, uh, so we, we can. Yes, you should just ask me questions. Yeah, we can, we can just start with right, we can start right here where you are with, with Butch Vig. So did, has Butch, I think my son's playing piano upstairs, by the way. I can't hear or, it. Is that somebody? Okay. Um, was, was Butch known as an engineer before you worked with him? I mean, he did. He knows how to engineer for sure. But um, he just liked working with me. Right. And, you know, I, I always, you know, I, I naively thought that the producer, when I first worked at Bearsville, I was like, the producer engineer is the highest animal in the food chain, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I've since learned that, you know, production on its own, you, you know, it's good to have somebody there that you trust doing the engineering so you can simply think about the music. And that's what Butch wanted to do. He so didn't want to an, think about the engineering. So, so he wanted to concentrate on the music. Yes, great. And, and that brings up, I mean, have you ever had to consider – uh, do you ever find yourself biting your tongue, uh, you know, and holding back on a, a musical opinion because you feel it's not in your wheelhouse at the moment because the producer's there? I mean, can you talk about that? Like, where are the are, are the blurred line are, are the lines blurred anywhere and so on? Sure. I mean, when I had something to say when I worked at Sound on Sound, I was told to shut up. You know, mm -hmm. no matter what, <laughs> and that's just that was just the way it was. You know? Or else they'll send you to the soldering room, <laughs> something like that. But that was just the way it was. And you know, if you want to cut right to these days, um, I'm working with this uh, artist named Donnie McCaslin right now, and he was the band leader on David Bowie's last record, Black Star. Oh boy! And he values my input. You know, I didn't record this. I'm I'm 
just mixing it, but he'll say, I want to do this or I want to try that. Do you think that's good? Or, you know, and, and sometimes I'll say, you know, I took the liberty of doing this. What do you think? He's, Oh, I like that. And then, you know, he also did not like one of my ideas. Right. So it's, it's, uh, you know, when I used to teach, I used to tell my students, you know, you will get to a point where you'll be asked certain things about an arrangement or a recording and you may not know. And if you don't know, the best thing to say is I don't know. Um, and, but, you know, we, as engineers, we really have to learn to listen to music that we may not love over and over and over and over again, you know? And I said, you know, I would say to my students, if you're not ready to do that, you know, you might want to think about looking at something else. And, you know, I can kind of, um, uh, remove myself, you know, from, you know, yes, this may not be a record that I would buy. But I can, I'm able to remove myself and, and, and totally be in simply a, te- a technical role. I was, you know? So you bring up, you, and I'm, again, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but you bring up two, no. you bring up two main points um, that I wanted you to elaborate on, which, which you're doing very, very nicely. But um, <clears throat> so are you saying that for an engineer, it's to some degree, you're kind of earning your stripes as you go. And at some point, somebody's going to turn to you because they, you're a trusted, you know, you're a trusted source, musical source. You've, you've been, you know, you've heard a lot of music they're thinking and you, yes. a, 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 you, you and have and, big and ears, you they, be, they used to say, right? Big ears. You could be objective too. Like, yeah. you know, in, in the present day, Brian, many people are used to recording themselves at home and they may or not, they may or may not be playing this for anybody else. And so a lot of times, I'm the one of the first objective ears that they encounter. And, right. you know, um, but I tread very lightly on that border because it, it's something, you know, it, it, every situation is different. Sometimes I might feel confident enough to say, do you really want that section 12 bars long or 16 bars right. long? Right. It might be better for the song if it was eight, you know? Right. And I can you know, now with non-destructive editing, it's not such a big deal to mock up a new, to mock up an edit, you know? What would you have, can you describe to us what you used to have to do for the edit? Yes, we used to have to cut the tape physically with a razor blade and uh, a grease pencil. And um, I became, working with Butch Vig, I became quite good at that because before DAWs, we edited drum takes or, and or band takes together. You know, we would cut, you know, the, the jazz world, I mean, basically the music industry has been editing for a long time, but it's not like today where, you know, you have complete freedom mm-hmm. to, and again, it's non-destructive. You know, in those days, you'd have to physically cut the tape, you know, and if it didn't work out, you know, and if you were careful enough, you could put the tape back together and it would be fine. Okay. But there, there is definitely a, a danger of damaging a master tape uh, during the edit, editing process. You know, if you use a dull razor blade or the splicing block is worn out, you know, you can, you can get yourself into trouble. There, um, there's an edit on the Miles Davis song, So What? At the end, there's a full band edit. And, you, mm-hmm. and the way that I can tell that there's a tempo shift, I think. Uh-huh. Like, you know, at, well, I can't, 
describe exactly where, but you know, the third chorus of a, of Miles solo or whatever, it's like you could just hear the full band edit. Sure. No, I mean, you know, the public, you know, the, the public doesn't hear things like we hear them, you know, um, thankfully. Um, I remember the very first time I did a tape edit, you know, I had watched the chief engineer of water music. I stood right next to him and watched him do, t you know, tape edit after, t you know, many, many tape edits. And he would look at me and go, you got any questions? And I go, no, I think I understand this. And I remember the night that we used to, before digital, we used to do things called sequencing sessions where we would take the stereo mixes, usually on quarter inch or half inch, and we would cut them together in an album sequence. And we'd also put the timing between songs. Oh, wow. And it was one of those sessions. And one of the people in the band said, oh yeah, and I want you to cut the solo section from this version into the present version. And I said, no problem. And I turned around and I was pale as a ghost and my, knee, my <laughs> knees were knocking. I'm telling you, Brian, my knees were knocking. I'm and nervous right now listening to it. I, <laughs> listening to I did the edit. I turned around and looked at the band and I hit play like I, yeah, like I had done this every day for every day of my life and it was fine. But I wasn't 100% sure about it. <laughs> <laughs> and again we'll we'll keep it anonymous <laughs> with when you're describing this with butch would it be like would would you just take the would would you be editing drum takes for time for feel and then Both. and then and then add things on top of that in other words would it be oh we'll wait for the final bass take until we get this drum track right like can you describe that process sure i mean generally you know, everybody would, the band would play along, but Butch would be really interested in the, in the feel and the timing of the drums. And a lot of, a lot of these recordings were done to metronomes. So if I can kind of, I can kind of explain, and one of the, one of, besides cutting great takes together, one of the things that we could do in the analog domain was uh, if there were late hits, we could, we could, fix those sometimes. So let's say there was a lazy snare drum somewhere in a song, right? Mm -hmm. What we would do is we would measure the distance. Yes, physically measure the distance between a kick and a snare that felt good. And then we would measure the distance between a kick and a snare where there was a late snare. So there's and a, science, we, a science to it. Almost. Oh yeah. And th this is where my editing skills definitely went up a, a lot working with Butch. And we would cut out as much time as we could get away with in order to um, correct the time. So again, late hits, we could pull forward, but that was, that was really, you know, that was sort of, and, and I, and I've done hundreds and hundreds of, you know, small edits like that. You, you typically be taking out a quarter inch or a half inch of tape. Oh boy. Uh, yeah, I know it sounds, but, sounds, but, but like a lot. we could, um, we could get the feel, you know, really right, you know, doing, doing, using that and, and also just editing in general, you know, plus we were working with really great drummers. So I don't want it to sound like we were really, you know, obsessive. Right. <laughs> no, it sounds great. I, I don't think it, I don't think there's any drummer that would take offense to, to yeah. what you're saying. Or any musician, you know. Yeah, I mean, gonna, we we great. could. I could definitely hear the difference, but 
the casual listener may not ever notice it, you know. Do you hear those edits now when you listen to a mastered track, like, you know, 25 years later? No, no, I don't. Okay. Not at all. That's a great question. Right. So, yeah, I was wondering, wondering if that would be the type of thing that would just drive you nuts, you know? I've done so many, and and a lot of those records that were done on analog uh, are, are quite, a, you know, 20 years plus. You know, I remember more of the process than than the exact edits. Can you? Know? you I, so, I, again, I, I have a lot of notes. I don't think we're going to get to it all, but... <clears throat> The, uh, about the we recording, could have a part two. yeah, we could, we could have yeah. part two. Um, about the recording, I've, I think it would be interesting for you to like. What what does it mean to like comp vocals? Like what what is this process when sure. you're? Great, great question. Yeah, you want to just bring bring us through it? Sure, comp I believe is an abbreviation for compile, and when you comp vocals or any performance for that matter. You, you typically do X number of takes. And once you've done X number of takes, let's say we've done three takes, okay? A, B, and C. What we'll do is we'll take, I mean, this is the way that I do it. I look for the, the, entire, the take that has the best overall flow and feel. And then whatever I need, let's say that's take B. Whatever I need that's not on take B, which now, which now gets transferred to a new track, the master track. Whatever is missing from B, I try to find it in A and C. And then I will take pieces of A and C and insert it into B, basically. And then you have a comp track. Who dis and you're working with the, with the artist and you're saying, yeah, this word, that sentence, it, this it, phrase. It Let's, so you're, you're giving me a scenario where it's the band and I working together? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm asking you, but, but would, you, would you often do this by yourself, maybe? I think it's better if the artist is out of the room when you do stuff like this, because they, they tend to hear everything. And it's not fair. You know, it's not fair to them. And it's not fair to the song, really. You know, I like to present them with a finished, you know, edit. And, right, and, and right. not let them hear the process because it's just going to drive them crazy, you know? And, if they, and then if they hear the finished edit and then they say, oh, well, is that the best you could find for this? And if I check my notes and I say, yes, we may re-sing a part, you know? Right. Um, How do you ask an artist to leave the room? You just say, look, this is going to be better if you just let me, if there's one mind on it. Because if you have two minds on something, it doesn't really, it doesn't always work out. I mean, I'll do whatever they want, you know, mm -hmm. in, the, in the end. You know, depending on how experienced they are, you know, you know, getting an artist's trust is a very valuable and sometimes difficult thing to accomplish. So, there, you know, there are so many different situations, you know, and people sometimes ask me what a producer does you know, it, I'll explain it like it was explained to me at Bearsville, because when I started working at Bearsville, I didn't understand what the producer was doing. In my mind, he wasn't doing anything. And the, the engineer said to me, if you have a football team, the quarterback is the engineer and the producer is the coach. Mm -hmm. Wow, great, and that, great analogy. And I thought that, that was a good one, yeah. Um, so, 
Yeah. At times, I'm I'm comping vocals. Sometimes I'm comping vocals with a producer. Um, sometimes the producer is confident enough to do it on their own. Um, sometimes it's just me, and then sometimes it's me and the artist, or it could be the artist and the producer. Like there, you know, every possible permutation is possible. Right. And then what about um, what about punches? You want to describe what punches are? Sure. Punches are when you you do an insert edit on the fly. So let's say we're going through a song and I say, okay, I want to get the third line of the second verse. We're going to punch that in. So we'll keep everything else except for the third line of the second verse. And we'll have the artist sing along and re-sing every, you know, maybe usually eight bars before the punch in point. And then we'll, we'll quickly punch in and then punch out and hopefully just capture what we need. It's like an insert edit, but it's a rolling, a rolling insert edit. For and it doesn't have to be one track. It could be the whole band. I've punched in the whole band sometimes. Yes. Yes. Um, are there any, are there any particular situations where you were either, where you were punching that, that come to mind? Can you, can you recall working with an artist where a punch was crucial and you had to execute it? Yes. I mean, uh, gosh, um, I mean, okay. I think, I think when you're, when, I mean, when you're fixing something, I think for an artist's psyche, they would rather punch it in than, than do just a section and have me at, I guess it, it really depends. But when you're, when you, let's say I'm punching the whole band, they're hearing the feel of the track that we're punching in on. So they can kind of hopefully bring themselves back to that feel and then boom, we punch in. Right. Whereas if I just said, okay, we need to get the outro. Do you want to just play the outro again? Right. That's another way of doing it, but I really can't have, I don't have a concise answer for that to be, to be honest. This, this, this it's what works, you know, you kind of do what works at the time. Did you ever, cause I, I, I love asking people this, but um, did, were you ever in a situation where you really liked take two, for instance, and <laughs> the, the band was more jazzed about take four? Absolutely. And then what do you do? What do you, like, how do you try and convince? Or, or do you even try and convince? Anybody? I mean, again, there's not a hard and fast rule for that. It, it just depends on, you know, hey, I could be wrong too, you know. So, <laughs> you know, seriously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that has happened more than once. Like, you know, I did not want to take out my little bass counter melody that I had uh, created with Don McCaslin, but he didn't, it stood out to him and he didn't like it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, it's like, yeah, it was a little bit of, I was, I was attached to it because I had made it, but it didn't serve the song right. ultimately. You follow me? Yes. And so I was a little disappointed, but I was much more, I was really happy with the way things were going in general. So I didn't dwell on it, you know? Right. I didn't even fight for it, to be honest. He I, listened to it for a little while and didn't like it. 
I really appreciate the fact that your ego is out of it, out of the, out of it entirely, always, and that that has taken a long for, time for yeah, that, Brian. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's 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 showing you. Uh, you you exhibit it. Um, Thank you. Um, uh, it's always great to hear myself stumbling over words. Well, folks, we're going to leave it there for today. You've been listening to part one of a two-part interview with producer and engineer John Sickett. Please stay tuned for part two, where we'll focus more on the individual artists and bands that John has worked with. We look forward to that discussion. You've been listening to Friends and Music with me, Brian Doherty. Today's intro and outro music were provided by my band, Treat and Release, which is available on all streaming services. To learn more about me and my work, I can be found on all social media platforms or visit my website by searching Brian Doherty Drummer. Thanks again for listening and see you soon. There's no